Number 10. Ephesians, third quarter, 2023. Daniel Duda. We are going to study lesson 10 of Ephesians, and it's titled Husbands and Wives Together at the Cross. Julie is going to offer us prayer. Thank you, Julie. Lord, thank you so much for your love for another day that we can be in your word, studying, knowing more about you. Thank you for the relationships you give us, in particular the relationship of us as your body of believers with you. Lord, you have so many things in store for us. Open our minds to truth. Open our minds to seeing things in different and new lights so that we can continue our walk with you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Julie. And welcome, everybody, and hope you are ready for lesson number 10. If you have not noticed as a little child... You were supposed to learn lately in life. There are big differences between men and women. And there are more than just physical differences. Let's read Isaiah 65, 17. Do you know why the text from Ephesians that we will read shortly is one of the most abused texts in the Bible? The first reason is because it has seemingly obvious meaning. But let's read Isaiah 65, 17. For I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. And what will be in these new heavens and new earth? Verse 20. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days, or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For one who dies at a hundred years will be considered a youth, and one who falls short of a hundred will be considered accursed. Okay, so when you read a text like this, you know, Houston, you've got a problem. What? New earth and an infant will die 100 years old? Can't be so. So immediately you know we need to be careful how we exegete the text. And of course, you know what is the solution. You know what is the answer. It's not part of this lesson. The answer is he speaks about the conditions after the return from exile. He doesn't speak about the new earth and new heaven that you and I understand from the book of Revelation. For that, you need to read Revelation 21. But when you read in Ephesians 5, Wives, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the Savior. You immediately know, okay, husbands are the saviors of their wives. In other words, the wives who disobey their husbands commit marital sin or mortal sin, though there is some difference in spelling. For some, there is no difference in meaning. I had actually one MA student who told me once, you don't need to do exegesis if the text is clear. So let me tell you, if the text is clear, you need to exercise double portion of carefulness. Why? Because you are not aware of your own biases and presuppositions and how they color your understanding. So let's make no mistake. Let's read the text from Ephesians 5. This text was shocking stuff in the first century and offensive to people who listened to it the first time just for different reasons than it's offensive now. It certainly wasn't a crowd pleaser. So Ephesians 5, 21 to 233. Be subject one to another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the Savior. Just as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word, so as to present the church to himself in splendor, without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind, yes, so that she may be holy and without blemish. In the same way, Husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own body, but he nourishes and tenderly cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and I am applying it to Christ and the church. Each of you, however, should love his wife as himself, and a wife should respect her husband. Okay, so you realize that under the Judaic law, the man's wife and children were his property. He could divorce his wife for whatever reason, like if she burned the supper. He could put his daughter to death for bringing dishonor to his name. 
So when Paul says that men should treat his wife as carefully as they treat their own body, it was a real eyebrow razor for people who were told that they could treat them however they wished. And so by repeating the text, it doesn't become more meaningful. And we need to understand what is he trying to say. So the second reason why this is such an abuse text is because of the consequence of sin and human nature. First was that we think we understand. And once we talk about the head, we'll speak about how we import the meaning of head into the text, which is not in the text at all and the New Testament at all. But the second reason is, if you look under number two, that because of sin, we start from the position of emptiness. There is a hole in every soul. And we believe that somehow we can use circumstances, money, or another person to fill that empty hole inside us. And so if the situation is to my advantage, if I can control situations, if I can control other people, or if those people behave the way I want them to behave, it will bring happiness to me. And so it's easy to use authority or force convinced that that will make me happy. But it doesn't work like that because anyone who submits outwardly in order to escape fear or ease guilt or to prove their spirituality, this is no real submission. True submission is the one that releases you from fear, that helps you to face and change your behavior, that releases you from guilt and makes you grow stronger in spirit. So the problem is that we read what we are not supposed to read. So the women read the part for the men and men read the part for the women. But Paul gives advice to different groups of people and I am supposed to read the advice which is for me. You can't read the advice for someone else and then try to enforce. You see, you see, it says here that you should do that. It doesn't work like that. Now, you are going to misunderstand the text. If you look at the lesson outline, you have it there on page one. So there's introduction. There's always introduction for Sabbath afternoon. And then you read counsel to Christian wives. That's Sunday's lesson. No, the text doesn't start with the counsel to Christian wives. On the contrary, if you start with the counsel to Christian wives, that guarantees misunderstanding. The counsel starts in verse 18 to 20. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. As you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts, giving thanks to God the Father at all times and for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so you see, our job is not to fix ourselves. Our job is not to fix the other person. Our job is not to drive each other to perform better or well. Our job is to learn what is God's plan. And God's plan is that allow yourself to be continuously filled with the Spirit. It's very interesting how Paul uses the language, even the passive voice. Allow yourselves to be continuously filled with the Spirit. He's not even using the active sense that make sure you fill yourself. You can't do that. All you can do is to allow for the Spirit to fill you. Why? Because God offers an amazing and continuous supply of himself to meet your needs. As long as you remain in a relationship with him, your needs are met in him. Get your life from God. And if you do this, you know what happens? In verse 19, he mentions the Spirit. In verse 20, he mentions the Father. And in verse 21, he mentions Christ. So, if you are continuously filled with the Spirit, and we discuss the implications for the worship and these participles that follow in the previous lesson, so we are not going to go into that. But in this lesson, he says, there is going to be mutual subjection, mutual submission, as there is between the Spirit, the Father, and Christ. And once you allow yourself to be continuously filled with the Spirit, comes verse 21. And that verse 21 functions as a hinge. So verse 21 says, Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. So Christ is mentioned, and he says, you need to be subject to one another. Now, do you understand the context? In the military, if the officer is subject to the foot soldier, there is no army. If in the business, boss yields to the worker in mutual subjection, the place is going to go bankrupt. In the government, if the tax collector yields to the taxpayer in mutual subjection, 
the state is going to go broke. And it's precisely because the church is not the army, church is not the business corporation, the church is not a political empire, that the mutual subjection which is required by the word of God is a normal pattern of relationship among Christians. The new community that Christ created thrives on mutual subjection. Why? Because that's how spirit, the Father, and Christ treat each other. And it's only possible among the believers if there is submission to the supremacy of Christ. If the believers have learned to submit to the authority of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, then in life they can submit to someone else. But if you are the boss in everything, you are not going to submit to anyone. And you are going to use the Bible text, spiritual authority, you name it, to require and enforce the submission of everybody else. So the key is the mutual submission among the believers, which is the head of the section. Verse 21 functions as a hinge, as a door hinge. You interpret 8 to 20 above it in light of 21, and you interpret how it looks like at home in the light of 21. Mutual submission, how it looks like in the church, verses 18 to 20, and then what it looks like within home, verses 22 to 23. All right, Larry. Well, it seems that several things are very interesting. First that's interesting is there's a one small statement, and then Paul goes on to explain it in really great detail, that if you then go back and reread it, what you end up concluding is that if the husband is not subjecting himself to Christ, he is not fulfilling the role of the head, in which case the wife no longer needs to subject herself to the husband, because this is a mutually, this is a circle, and that when one part of the circle is broken, the circle is broken. You can't then come back and say, because of the contract, okay, yeah, the husband, you screwed up, you didn't do, but the wife still has to do what the rest of the contract says she's supposed to do. There's this whole circle of things that has to happen or it breaks down. Yes. Thank you. Lou? Well, I look at the text really as a promise. What God is saying is if you put me first, if you both put me first in your lives, this is how you will treat each other with respect and love. And it's not a matter of anybody controlling anybody. God doesn't control people. He has freedom of choice. And I think when the issue becomes a matter of controlling, it's not God's way. God is not a controller. He is a lover. So I think to me, it's a promise that if both people are yielded in selflessness to him, it'll be a beautiful thing. And if one is selfish, the other one is maybe connected. That's a challenge because we have to treat the one that would be selfish still with kindness and love and respect, but it becomes more difficult to have a true marriage when there's imbalance and unequally yoked. But when we're equally yoked in Christ, it's a promise of love and respect for each other. It's mutual. Okay. And so verse 21 is then the key thesis, and then is the application how this is empowering the lives and illustrated in husband and wife. And then in chapter six, it will be parent and child and slave and a master relationship. Dan? Is there any other word for submit beside that? Because I think when I think about submitting to one another, it's sort of a rather low level as far as relationships go. And it seems to me that like some other people have been pointing out, there are other words that enhance the idea of good relationships. Submitting, as I say, maybe if you have a slave mentality or maybe culturally at that time, that was the right word. But it seems to me that better words could be used to talk about relationships, especially among the Godhead. Is there other ways to translate that? Subject. Interesting in Greek is the same word which is used in Romans 13 verses 1 and 5 about subjecting yourself to the governing authorities. In James 4, 7, it's about subject yourself to God and the devil will flee from you. So it's the same word, be subject to one another. Now notice that it's not motivated by self-interest. What do I get out of this? If I submit, if I do this, then I 
achieve more, so ultimately I benefit from it. No, it's not from self-depreciation, inferiority, or the compromise. I gain something, you gain something too, or resignation. What else can I do? So that's the way we are going to live. No, it's by recognition of God's ennobling initiatives in creation and redemption. We submit to one another because we are one flesh and we belong together in the body of Christ as a part of redemption. In the church, we submit to one another. Remember the pyramid? And six weeks after the salvation act, God gathers people at Sinai and says, Israel, prepare to meet your God, because he wants to make sure he speaks to everybody, not to Moses, who becomes the new Pharaoh. And God instructs Moses that leadership needs to be plural, that Moses is not the new Pharaoh who sits at the top of the pyramid. And so he puts 70 elders in charge. He cuts off the top of the pyramid. And you know, when Jesus comes, by the way, and then Israelites say, we want to have a king, we want to be like the nations around us, so they put back the pyramid. And when Jesus comes, he not only chooses 12 or 70 again, in Luke 10, he has 70, but he turns this, whatever is left, upside down and says, if you are the leaders, you need to see yourself at the bottom, and the followers are at the top. John? I don't have any special light in relation to Dan's question. But I was just noticing that this is a compound word. You're familiar with hyperglycemia and hypoglycemia, meaning high or low blood sugar. And this word for submit begins with hupo, which is the low. And so the whole aspect of the word is one person voluntarily putting themselves under another in a sense. You know, I think of Philippians 2, where Paul says, think of others better than yourself. And this is what we learn from Christ Jesus. So. I think there is that, there's definitely a sense of subordination, but it's completely voluntary, and it's part of a submission to Christ because that's the way Christ lives. Yes. So, if you look at number seven, the word authority is never used in the New Testament to describe any aspect of husband and wife relationship. The only place where authority is used as a verb not as a noun, as a verb, is in 1 Corinthians 7, 4, but read that text that the woman has authority over male's body. That's not, as Larry mentioned, that conservative Christians want to hear. But the noun is never used in New Testament to describe the relationship between husband and wife. Husbands are never instructed to exercise authority over their wives. Wives are never commanded to obey their husbands or to submit to the authority of the husband. There is no threat to accompany the injunction for wives to submit. If you don't, this is the price. Larry? In the Christ-like example, and Christ gave everything, and if a man gives everything, the few men I know who have given everything of themselves to their families, their families are truly blessed and are deeply in love with that human. Okay. So any pagan woman can submit to the authority of her husband. But when Paul says that women can submit to her husband in servanthood as to the Lord, it requires a different level of submission. Let's go to Dan. Yeah, I'm just coming back to what you and John said. While you're both answering my question, I began to relate what you were saying to humility and saying to myself, you know, if humility is one of the basic premises for Christianity, especially as you described it, maybe humility is related. You can't be altruistic or you really can't help people in the true sense unless you do it with humility. You can be altruistic because you're showing how rich you are, how great you are. But I think that always comes off a little bit. People say they're sort of pompous when people do it that way. There's a certain resentment. But I think when a person is truly humble and is willing to use the concept of submitting and willing to, with humility, help people, or relate to people, I think that leads to a different kind of interaction. I wonder whether this is what Paul is trying to get to. Regarding the resentment, if the Trinity is the model, the amazing thing is the Father says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, and the Holy Spirit does not have any resentment saying, and I am here too, don't forget me either. The Holy Spirit, you have this question, can we pray to the Holy Spirit or do we pray only to Jesus? And the Holy Spirit goes whining into the Trinity meeting and says, everybody's singing these songs about Jesus. They completely forgot me. There is no resentment because the success of one is the success of the whole Trinity. The theologians speak about this 
timidness on the part of Trinity. They don't need to push. Jesus says, I do nothing, only what pleases my father. Now, has he lost his personality? No, he was himself, but he has no problem. He even says, the father is greater than me, and all Aryans have a problem with that ever since. But Jesus has no problem to say, father is greater than me, and I gladly submit to him. And nothing of his personality is taken away. Now, imagine that Ellen White, as a prophet in 19th century, can say that if a wife loses her personality in a marriage, that is not pleasing God, and that's not how it's supposed to be. Imagine that, in that society, to say that, that the two should not be so enmeshed that one loses their personality, because it's modeled on the relationships in the Trinity. Henry? I really appreciate the fact that you began with Isaiah 66, creating the context that some things that seem to be clear when we are reading require even more thought on us, because it shouldn't be that simple. And one of the areas that we need to remember when we are studying this uh, section from 21 and forward of chapter 5 of Ephesians is that this chapter began with verse 1 when Paul is reminding us that we need to imitate God. So all of this is, again, this call of him that submit us to the Lord is, again, a callback to that imitate God. So it is not isolated. It's not just a verse without any context. So I need to keep that in mind and also would like to refer that this is not the only time when we find such a challenging invitation for submission, but that is troublesome for us because we don't really know, we don't really understand what it means to be under the authority of God. And Genesis 1.26 creates exactly the same difficulty because there God created men to have dominion over creation. And we simply misunderstand that, that we are the one in power, the one that dominate, the one that master, the one that will be in charge, the one that will have the complete authority or to rule. But all of this has to be as an imitation of God, as imitators of God, that when God is in authority, he never forces us to do anything, that he has given us the total freedom. So for us, submission gives us the chills and the confusion because we are seeing it under the perspective of fallen human beings, that the only way that we understand submission is that somebody is going to be on top of you and is going to force you down because of the authority. But this is an imitation of God. And this is what the call is to remember that is a completely different thing that we do not understand. That's right. It's an imitation of God, and it's an imitation of God in light of the cosmic reconciliation that happened on the cross. Because some curses have been removed, and we are not in the post-Genesis 3, we are back to Genesis 1 and 2 world. And yes, as you mentioned, wait until we come to the commandment to the husbands, and we start defining head. Do we define it on the basis of culture, the boss of? Or do we define it on the basis of the Bible? Because just as you cannot define anger or wrath or atonement on the basis of culture. Remember the famous story by Graham Maxwell that is the night after you forgot the anniversary and you stop at the petrol gas station to buy some appeasement, you know, to bring atonement? No, it, that's not the way to define it. And so we will come to that. But let's go to Karen first. This week I was at a, a meeting and a, a politician, a Christian politician in Britain who was talking about marriage gave this wonderful definition, I think, of what it means to submit. And he said, marriage is ideally the mutual union of two people lovingly investing in the flourishing of the other so that both will be blessed and they will be a blessing to others. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a really beautiful way of, of putting it, that we invest in the flourishing of the other. And he was so moved when he described that about how his wife had invested in him and he had invested in her, that he was moved to tears in front of a whole group of people because of the beauty of that experience for him. And that was very powerful as well. Yeah, there is the concept of shalom, of flourishing. Mm. Yes. When the relationships are what they are supposed to be. Let's go to Michael Bell. Paul's statements here were really radical at the time, whether it was among the Jews, in which the husband was in charge of everything, Even the Romans, who had 
what we call community property today. But even so, Pater Familias, he was the guy that ran everything. And we tend to think that we've grown beyond that in our modern society, but it's amazing how often these issues come up. And I remember several years ago, I was involved in an ancillary way, but as a lawyer in a dispute between a husband and wife, they ultimately got a divorce because the husband kept saying, she's supposed to do as I tell her to do. It's right here in the Bible. And he would quote this. I said, yeah, but you're supposed to honor your wife. You're supposed to love your wife like Christ loves the church. He says, I do love her, but she's got to submit to me first. And it just is amazing that in our enlightened society, how prevalent this stuff is. We hear about murders where a a guy murders his ex-wife. Why? Because she left him for another man, as he put it. And it is amazing to me how much this culture and culture drives us so much, affects our viewpoints and judgments. Yes, thank you. Lou? I was wondering about other cultures. This is probably, I would think, maybe more difficult in some cultures for them to really understand and really live this or experience this as God intended it. Would that be true where they grew up thinking the wife isn't much of anything and must obey and and all that kind of stuff? It would be more difficult for them to grasp the true meaning of a love relationship probably, wouldn't it? Yes, of course. But as we said, remember when Paul says here for Ephesian male, that was a significant confrontation between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. Just in the previous lesson, there was a significant confrontation in the area of sexual ethics. When Paul says to wives that they should be under their husband, that was nothing new. They knew that. He only, what is new, he tells them that if they don't do it from heart, as a result of being filled with the spirit, it doesn't count. But they were already placed under their husbands as a function of their culture. But when Paul says that a husband needs to come under his wife, to live as his, the life of his wife was more precious than his own life, for him to nourish and cherish her as he would care for himself, that was unheard of. In Paul's day, in other cultures, in those cultures, wives were to keep the house and take care of children. Ephesian males went to other women for sex, for companionship, even for invigorating religious experiences. And so what Paul is saying here went across the grain of everything that an Ephesian male ever learned or any role model of man-woman relationships that they ever saw. If a male tried to put it into practice, can you imagine how his peers would view him as a weakling or as a lunatic? But that's why Paul says you cannot achieve this by trying harder. The only way to achieve this is by heart transformation if you are filled by the Spirit. Yes. I'm thinking of today in today's culture, when missionaries go to foreign lands where the culture has been different and it's been where the man controls the woman and all of that, I bet it makes it harder for them to grasp that kind of love, wouldn't it be? That kind of a relationship? And the problem is not with grasping, the problem is what the society allows regarding the functioning. And that's why Paul can say, There is no male, there is no female as a principle, yet he can say, let her ask at home, because if she speaks wisely in the church, in that culture, that is going to be misunderstood. I told you that males went for companionship to the heteras, to the prostitutes. So if a man comes to the church and there is a woman standing behind the pulpit speaking wisely, the husband is going to ask, "Hmm, how come my wife never speaks like this? Oh, I know why. She must be a prostitute. Because the prostitutes had to learn the art of enticing men and holding a conversation. And so the culture allows the level of functioning, but that doesn't take away the principle that in principle with God, we are all the same. And that's why it will be different in Chile than in Spain or Poland, in Papua New Guinea, that will be in California or in the Bible Belt, because you can't ignore the culture, but it does not change the principle. And that God ultimately wants to redeem any culture because all culture are broken and all culture needs infilling of the Holy Spirit. And that's why the definition that Karen mentioned says, ideally, does it function like that Monday to Friday in every relationship? Probably not. Is that an excuse? No, we still aim for the ideal. 
All right, let's go to Henry. And just following up on what Lou was saying is that it is not just other cultures, but especially Christians with reading the Bible under the perspective of this Judeo-Christian culture where women is consistently used as not really good, right? We find women multiple times in the Bible used to show lesser than ideal. And that's just the way that the Bible seems to be read. And then I will be really concerned about other cultures, but Christianity itself, we continue to struggle with this because we continue to think that the way that we read it in the Bible is prescriptive and I have to take it the way it reads. Okay, thank you, Chris. Welcome, good to have you again. Good to see you. So I was just thinking of at the end of chapter five, where it's saying that every husband must love his wife as himself, every wife must respect her husband, but yet you cannot command love and you cannot command respect. So what's so interesting to think about, you know, this idea that you'll hear a lot of pastors talk about that, you know, hey, God commands you to love. We expect you to love or we expect respect and so forth, but you can't have that unless you've earned it. And earning meaning you've seen evidence and you actually, it's something that you want. And so I think this idea really, it comes from the person that you are more than anything else. That's right. You can't command forgiveness. You should forgive. No, it doesn't work like that. Yeah. Okay. Let's read verse 22. After that thesis of 21, the mutual submission, which is the rule for all believers, applies to all husbands, all wives who are believers. Paul goes from principle to application. What does it look like in the church between husbands and wives? And he starts with the wives first, verse 22. Wives, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. And uh, 23 and 24. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the Savior. Just as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be in everything to their husbands. Okay. So when he says, wives, be subject or submit to your husband, as I said, it's the same word as submitting to the authority. But Paul says there, you submit because he does bear the sword. So if you don't want to get into trouble, you better submit. In 1 Peter 2.14 says, the authorities are there to punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do right. But this is not about getting praise or escaping punishment. Authority-based submission is nothing to do with the dynamics of a Christian couple. And that's why we said the authority is never used as a noun in the New Testament for describing these relationships. And once is used as a verb in 1 Corinthians 7.4, and then it shows the mutual submission. So can you see that the surrender required by this principle of mutual submission is so radical and comprehensive that obedience to authority pales into insignificance. Any pagan wife can submit to her husband. But as to the Lord, for that you have to be believers. For that you need to be filled with the Spirit. Now let's go to the argument for the husband is the head of the wife. Now back to the, if you look under number eight, how do you understand the term head? Where would you go to find the meaning for the word head? If you want to see and understand what it means that the husband is the head of the wife, you need to understand what it means that Christ is the head of the church. If you want to know what the wrath of God means, you don't start with your anger that you get upset about something and strongly emotional, and then you later regret what you did or said. No, you need to get the inspired understanding. What is it that the wrath of God means? Otherwise, if you are going to project your or cultural understanding into it, you are in deep trouble because it's not defined by what it says. Now, in the previous chapter, in chapter 4, in verse 7, we learned that Christ is the head of the church who gave gifts to the church. And why does he give gifts to the body, to his members? So that we learn from each other, so that we grow together, so that we help each other. So you can see that the head in this does not mean the boss of. It gives completely different meaning. We are having Christ as a head because we decided to submit to his authority, because he provides everything we need to become and to do everything that God intends for us. And then comes verse 25, 
the ultimate expression of being the head is that he sacrificed his own physical earthly life. He gave himself for the body. Christ is not our head because he himself placed himself over us. He's our head because we placed ourselves under him. When we were baptized, we promised to recognize and respect his authority. You become a Christian by bending your knee to Christ as the Lord. So you submit to his headship voluntarily. And the role of Christ as a head is to build up, to serve, and if needed, even to die for the church. And that's why the husband's love for wives is defined according to the standard set by Christ, not by the standards of the society. Christ was the one who took the form of the servant, who humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. If it's based on the authority or requiring submission, that it makes a mockery of the cross where Christ voluntarily gave up himself for the church. And that's why Paul says, husbands are expected to give themselves up for their wives. So if Christ is the model, then it's not his power, his lordship, his authority, that we are presented as the ones that we need to emulate. It's his humility, his abnegation, his servant behavior. If the husband reminds his wife that he is the boss, then he is not the head, as Christ is the head of the church. Now let's go to Henry. And what you were just saying about Christ being this perfect head, willing even to die, is a reflection of what God is under the view of the great controversy. Because we, his creatures, were the ones that went astray. And he, God, was the one that was willing to do everything possible in order to rescue us from the mess that we got into. So being the head means being the responsible, the one with the responsibility to sacrifice anything possible and do anything possible in order to solve the problem, not to weep and try to find slaves to fix it for you. Yes, thank you. Lou? I find it interesting when you see what's going on in the business world today. The old style corporation top down is pretty much not working and they have realized it and that they have realized that a good leader is actually someone who is listening and not putting himself up in a hierarchical system. And it's really interesting because many companies that are very successful today have made that transition into a leadership role rather than a dominant, you do as I say. Those are kind of phasing out even in the business world today. And I think that's a good thing. Servant okay. leadership. Right. Thank you. So can you see that Paul says everywhere else, head means a boss? chief executive officer, commander. But in the kingdom of God, head is the person who comes under the others in order to serve, in order to build up, even willing to die for others. It's completely other-orientated, not self-centered. Let's read verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word, so as to present the church to himself in splendor, without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind. Yes, so that she may be holy and without blemish. Okay, can you see the progression? So, if Paul said to the wives that they need to submit, we cannot ignore what Paul is now saying to the husbands. So, he is going to interpret what it means being subject to one another from verse 21. If husbands are not to be submissive to their wives, then it's against verse 21. But if the purpose in verse 22 to tell the wives you need to submit, then you expect that now Paul is going to tell the husband the most natural next step would be instructing how to use their authority properly so that they keep the wives in subjection. Does he do that? No, exactly opposite. The only role prescribed for the husband is the love-motivated self-surrender that is willing to subject itself to death for the sake of their wives. So the requirement laid here on husbands, remember, if you come to the altar and then you remember that your brother has something, who is supposed to take the first step initiative? You. And that's why when he comes to the husbands, instead of telling, and this is how you keep your wives 
in subjection, he says, actually, Christ is the model for you as he loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is what you are supposed to do. The husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Nobody hates their own flesh, but they nourish it and tenderly care for it, just as Christ does for the church. And then he goes to Genesis 2. What does he do? Because of what Christ did on the cross, because of the cosmic reconciliation, the curse of Genesis 3 is removed. In the post-Genesis 3 world, there needs to be a boss. There needs to be someone who is going to command. But Paul says, now you are going to model new type of community, new type of relationship. And he goes to Genesis 2 and shows that for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I am speaking, I am relating it to Christ and the church. And of course, there was an interesting discussion, verse 33, and the wife should should fear the husband. So what does fear mean? Fearing the Lord. There is plenty of discussion on Pino on this one. So can we conclude? The primary purpose of marriage is not procreation. Childless marriages can be fulfilling. The primary purpose of marriage is not social hierarchy. It's not exercise of authority. The primary purpose of marriage is spiritual growth, physical togetherness, social oneness, and emotional belonging to one another. In church, Christ is fully seen and experienced when we submit to him. If you experience a relationship of grace, then you can submit to God and to put to his service everything that you have in order to enable other people. If we want to model to the world the relationships that God wants us to have for this cause, so that God may be seen in our midst, and he quotes Genesis 2, for this cause, so that new type of community is modeled and cosmic reconciliation is seen by others outside. Paul uses pre-fall, pre-curse language to describe the relationships that happen when people are filled by the Spirit, when we don't take cues from the culture around us or from ourselves. We are back to God's original plan. To read the text in Ephesians 5 any other way implies that we are still in the pre-Christ era, that Christ hasn't died on the cross. Rodney. Yeah, thank you. As I was listening to that conversation, I was thinking about what Isaiah said about Jesus. Uh, Jesus was not just ordinary uh, redeemer. He was the Prince of Peace. Well, in fact, he came to restore the righteousness and God is Father's kingdom of which Adam lost in Eden. And he did it by living a righteous life. And he did it as he incarnated himself to be a human. So when I see it from that context, I see that Jesus is not the only a mere person who came and died. He is a king. He is a prince of peace. And if we see it in that light, we give value to his death. And I have heard time and again in a final conversation that his kingdom is and covenant is a surety. It is a type of kingdom that there is a stronger authority which makes a covenant with the weaker authority. Well, in fact, the stronger authority provides everything, everything. And I think what God did was an exemplary for of that. And when we see the death of Jesus, he did everything. He is the king, he is the prince of peace who came to restore righteousness and his kingdom. That's why in Matthew 6, 33, he says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be it. If we see it in that light, I think submission to him is a response of love of what he has done, the king and prince of heaven. Thank you. Thank you, Rodney. And remember 1 Corinthians 15, if it's about authority, then why is God going to destroy it? When everything is accomplished, Christ is going to submit to the Father and he has no problem with that. It's not going to take anything away from him. Doesn't mean that he's a lesser God or something. No, he gladly submits and then the Father will destroy all the authority for the rest of eternity. It's not needed.
because everybody does what is right because it's right not because they are under the authority and scared of the consequences or fear what is going to happen to me if i don't do this or that that's not what god is trying to achieve now it will take millennium for some it might take even longer for others until we learn this ideally because we are not there yet but it's clear the direction and the vector in which it goes because of what he achieved on the cross because of the cosmic reconciliation karen yes i think when we love because god first loved us that's the only way we can know what love is like and as children we only learn what love is like from the way our parents love us and when we learn from god what unselfish love looks like and what it does and how it operates how it encourages and blesses and everything and we practice and grow these unselfish love skills in our home it's the place where we can learn and grow them and really hone those skills so that we can become better at loving the people around us well and i think if that process breaks down if we are not being filled with god's love first if we don't learn how to love each other well at home then we're not going to be so good at loving others in our communities so well so i think it flows from god into us and then into our closest relationships and then it can flow out into the world around in a much healthier way and also not only in the home but in the local community because as you said ideally this is what the marriage looks like but how many people live in ideal marriage there is a reason why you can't find an ideal marriage in the bible as the mother of Helen Hunt says to her when she says as good as it gets movie why can't i get a normal boyfriend because she gets jack nicholson and the mom says there is no such thing dear chris well i want to put just a, a little different spin on this one and that is if you think about this whole idea of submission though i think it would be far better to go to john 15:15 and think about he does not want us to be servants right he wants us to be friends well what do friends do friends talk they question each other they discuss things and therefore they learn about what's going on it's not a submission issue it's hey i want to share everything with you but i want you to understand and so the relationship i think in the marriage should be looked at through that lens instead of well i need to submit to my wife or my wife needs to submit to me or you know whatever it is i think the friendship model is far superior than a submission model so i don't know if i'd want to look at paul's text here and say that this is the ideal when jesus has actually given us something potentially even better sure but with tota scriptura we'll go to the gospel of john the fourth quarter 24 but the third quarter of 23 we study Ephesians and you can see the same ideas the same models of a relationship are even there if we are willing to look number 13 if people saw a husband and wife who were filled with the spirit and mutually submissive such a marriage such a presence would inspire most relationships and marriages both in first century Ephesus and in the world today even in the church but for that to happen whether in Ephesus of the 1st century or California of 21st century or Europe or Papua New Guinea or Africa or South America or Asia it requires not trying harder not using gimmicks authority fear blackmailing it requires daily filling of the holy spirit michael i handled a number of different divorces and i came to realize that one of the reasons for divorces was that the one or the other spouse maybe both of them disliked the other spouse if a husband and wife if they like one another but are not deeply in love that marriage will work and it really a great marriage is one in which you like one another and you're deeply in love with one another that works very well thank you So Karen put in the chat love is learning to love another imperfect person in the best way we can as an equally imperfect person. So that's why it's important that in the church we talk about our marriages because if the church becomes the place where you can freely speak about the reality you don't have to hide or pretend that everything is okay because the church is a place of healing and growth for the relationships. If you start viewing the difficulties and the indication that something is wrong, you are going to avoid the work that needs to happen in order to improve the relationships. Falling in love is easy. 
Growing in love is amazing, but it takes hard work. And as you know from other areas of life, most things in life get better if you work on them. If you restore cars, tend the garden, run a business, or raise children, if you intentionally put effort into something, usually over a period of time, with God's help, things become better. And that's why we need to talk about the fact that there are no ideal marriages in the Bible and probably no ideal marriages in the contemporary church. But that does not prevent us from reading Ephesians 5 as a part of the consequences of the cosmic reconciliation. So whether you are single and never lived in a marriage or whether you are married or whether you are divorced, there is hope for everyone because God is at work willing to fill us with his spirit and to create a new type of community. As John Stott put the title of his commentary on Ephesians, God's New Society. So, and if your relationships are not what God intends them to be, I hope you say enough of that. We need to have a difficult conversation. We need to forgive. We need to start moving towards something that is better. Or we need to put boundaries in place because things are not going to change magically. But God wants us to discover a new dimension of love based on how he treated us, he first loved us, and how he treats his church. Let's pray. God, it's so amazing that we can come to you the way we are as broken human beings that need healing in every aspect of our lives. And we realize how passages like this have caused unnecessary suffering throughout the centuries to so many of your children just because other children with good intention abuse them and use them in a way they were not intended. So we pray that you keep sending your Holy Spirit and working on each one of us so we can get a better grasp of who you are, where we live in the storyline of the Bible, and how what you accomplished on the cross changes everything and brings us back to the pre-fall, pre-curse era so that your will can become reality in our own lives, in our local churches, in the part of the world where we live so that people who don't know you yet can come to a saving knowledge of your character, of your Son, and be open to the work of your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.